Monday and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. And today we have guest producer Josh sitting in. Not me, another Josh. There's another Josh. Josh. Yeah. You know what his nickname is? Uh, little Josh. The Great Stink. <laughs> that is a terrible nickname, Chuck. <laughs> We're just kidding. Of course. Sorry, Josh. I'm I'm sorry for Chuck. Everyone knows I'm the Great Stink. I don't know about that either. I've never <laughs> once smelled you in the, like, more than decade that we've worked together. Oh, I've yeah? never known you to smell foully. Wow. All right. That means I'm doing my, uh, I'm keeping my distance. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been close, buddy. I know. And you still don't stink. Sure. Certainly not a great stink. No. But that's neither here nor there. We're not talking about a great stink yet, are we? No, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right, exactly. You don't even know what it is that you brought up. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are talking to start, Chuck, about a little city called London Town. Yeah. Across the pond in Great Britain, the United Kingdom, England, that whole area over there. And um, London's been around a very long time. It's been around since at least the Romans <laughs> kind of came and set up shop, right? Yeah. Oh, by the way, since you brought that up, I hate to get okay. sidetracked already, but sure. uh, my good friend Rob from uh, college, Rob Elsey, my roommate and one of the smartest guys I know, texted me the other day and said, by the way, Alexander uh-huh. the Great was neither Greek nor Roman. He was Macedonian. I saw somebody else email that in. I was like, Greek's still closer. Yeah. So anyway, shout out to Rob. Way to go, Rob. Real-time corrections. Yes. Way to go, Rob. All right, so um, London's been around for a couple of years, is what you were saying. It is, and it's, it kind of slowly grew, and more and more people were like, hey, I like the I like this town. There's a lot going on here. The fish and chips are great. Um, eventually, it will produce uh, some pretty, uh, pretty neat people. I'm going to settle down here. <laughs> I couldn't think of a single <laughs> Londoner as an example. But, you, you know, people, people. Mary Poppins is going to show up eventually. Thanks, yeah. Chuck. So um, people started settling and accumulating, and uh, it became like a pretty substantial city by the, like, 1600s, right? Yeah, big time. But then the 19th century came, and all of a sudden, this is at the, the peak of the British Empire, uh, the, the early 19th century came along, and London just exploded in in population, in industry, um, right before and then during and then right after the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, um, London really uh, uh, just grew as a result of that. And all of a sudden, there was something like 3 million people living in London by like the, the 1850s, which made it the most densely populated city on the planet, from what I understand. Or at least the, it had the largest population, from what I understand. Yeah, and you know what that means? Yes, I do. That means if there's how many millions you said? Three million? Three in 1850. That's three million buttholes. <laughs> yep. It's and mouths. Human buttholes that Not are just, just humans. expelling things. No, just three million humans. And then you've got right. horse buttholes and right. all sorts of other animal buttholes. Pig buttholes. And they're just all holes. they're all pooping all the time. Right. Pooping. Uh, every once in a while, they'd catch a foodborne illness, and they'd start throwing up, too. Sure. There was a lot of tinkle coming out of other <laughs> holes. Um, There's a lot of excrement that was being generated in London all of a sudden. And there had been for a very long time, but all of a sudden, it reached like a critical mass. 
And up to this point, London um, enjoyed what were called Roman sewers, which were basically just a ditch in the ground that were meant to collect rainwater, right? And if you had to poop or pee or um, vomit or something like that, and you were human, in your house, you probably had a cesspool, which was basically a pit in the basement. Sometimes if you were fancy, you might have like a cistern or a canister or something like that. And you would go poop or vomit or pee into this hole. And then the hope was that the hole was big enough and your family was small enough in number that the poop or pee or vomit would would decay and get absorbed into the surrounding ground faster than you could fill it up. That was that was how they dealt with with um, surface water and sewage. Then you had a hole that you pooped and puked and vom and peed in, <laughs> and then you had rain, ditches conveying rainwater to the. Um, to the uh, Thames is where the rainwater was supposed to end up. But it wasn't just rainwater, was it, that ended up in the Thames? No, I mean, these, uh, I mean, I don't think we can just breeze past these cesspools. They were purposely designed to overflow into the streets. Eventually, yes. They figured out that, yeah, we're getting to the point where we have enough people that that our, our cesspools are not decaying fast enough that they're starting to overflow. Yeah, and if you lived, uh, if you were poor and lived on like the basement or the ground floor of an apartment building or something, um, you might very well see this stuff seeping into your household. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes if that's if like someone's gone and, or if it's an empty building, uh, that stuff would build up and methane would become trapped in there and there would be literal explosions from the trapped methane of people's poo. A poop explosion. Yeah, it was really, really bad. And then when you talk about the Thames River, uh, the Thames is a tideway, so that means that the tides affect the water flow. And so it's not like sewage, you know, they thought like, let's just send it out to the sea and it's all good. But right. what it would, would happen is stuff would just kind of slosh back and forth because of the tides. <laughs> and the end result was the Thames River was, and when I say disgusting, I mean capital D, disgusting. Yes. Dangerously disgusting. Capital D, dangerously, too. Yeah. So, um, Chuck, it was, I don't know how they didn't realize that where London was on the Thames was what's called the Tideway. So it is affected by the tide. And not only is it affected by the tide, meaning when the tide rises, the, um, the estuary and the sea basically comes up into London, but there's also still water coming from the headwaters of the Thames. So at high tide, sometimes the Thames would overflow its banks. It would get so high, right? So not only did you have the Thames itself just basically turning into like a washing machine on the agitation cycle, stewing and mixing up garbage and remains because there are a lot of dead human and animal bodies yeah, in the Thames. much more than poop and pee. All, yeah, all that sewage, everything that people didn't want anymore, they just put into the Thames. But unfortunately, it wasn't carried out to the sea. It was just kind of mixed together. And it would be mixed together and kind of turned into a solution that was suspended in the in the water 
and then eventually some of it would settle to the to the bottom but you have hundreds and hundreds of years of waste just cycling right outside of london and like you said eventually by the by the the 19th century apparently it really turned starting in about 1830 they found records that as as late as 1800 People were still um, catching and eating salmon out of the Thames. Oh, but by, God. By, by 18, well, the, it was okay back then. It was fine. I don't know about that. <laughs> by 1830, something had changed that, that it had just, again, reached that critical mass. Kind of like, um, did you ever see that South Park where um, they go to the, the water park? No. And like there, there, there's like some scientist who realizes that the the P to water ratio is about to hit a tipping point, and once it tips past that point, everything's going to turn into P, um, and it happens, and it's disgusting. That's all, all kind of what happened in the 1830s to the Thames. It reached a critical point and tipped into just like that dangerously disgusting vat of water that was just hanging around in London at the time. Yeah. So. Uh, there's a, a very famous scientist named Michael Faraday who made his name in uh, in other realms of science, but he actually worked for the Royal Institution uh, in 1855 when he basically started doing an investigation. He went down to that river, uh, like got in it in a boat, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and did various tests and, you know, recorded a bunch of stuff. And then uh, one of his tests was like he would drop white paper in there mm-hmm. and he said, after this paper gets in like an inch below the surface, you can't even see it. And like poop is basically like bubbling up to the surface. Like you can see human excrement on the surface down here. Yeah, like where where the the Thames is flowing past like the structure of a bridge that is jutting out of the water and it's it's being cut up by that bridge the flow is, it's roiling up this muck and disgusting stuff is just roiling up in clouds that he said were visible even in this this opaque of a water. And he wrote all this stuff up into an article uh, letter I guess that he sent to the Times uh, newspaper. Uh, uh, that he called Observations on the Filth of the Thames. And this was in 1855, I think it was published. And um, he basically says, if we just keep going this way, we should not be surprised if um, something really bad happens, like a hot spell comes along and reminds us that we really missed a chance to do something about this and it's now too late. So that's 1855, and that's Faraday. At the same time, there's another thing going on kind of off to the side where a, um, a scientist named John Snow, who actually knew a lot, it turns out, he um, was no one of, of the— No Game of Thrones jokes? That was a Game of Thrones joke. <laughs> oh, it was? Yeah, didn't somebody <laughs> say, like, you know nothing, John Snow? Oh, I don't know. I quit I watching that show did. a while ago. But I think that might have been first season. Oh, but well, anyway, I did watch that, but it yeah. did make an impact. I think somebody said, you know nothing, Jon Snow. I don't know. I just saw it on Twitter years back. They said, winter he, is coming. Right. They said, red wedding. I don't know. Those it, are the only things I remember. There you go. <laughs> just just say red wedding. That's yeah. it. Um, so this Jon Snow guy, I think he had an H in his name, which was his parents put in to differentiate him from the Game of Thrones cat. That's right. Is um, He... He was basically one of the world's first epidemiologists, and he's working feverishly at the time because there was something called the Victorian Plague, which is cholera, and cholera was a waterborne illness that you did not want. You could literally 
vomit and poop yourself to death in a matter of hours, you would lose so much, um, you would dehydrate that quickly. And so Jon Snow was like, there's a cholera outbreak, and I suspect it's in the water. But he went against the grain at the time because during the 1850s, Chuck, everyone thought that you caught diseases from the smell of things. It was called the miasma theory. That's right. People thought that, and they thought that possibly that's where even cholera was coming from. Right. Uh, and cholera was, was nothing new. Uh, there was an epidemic in the 1830s uh, that killed more than 6,000 people. There was a second outbreak uh, kind of shortly before this in the late 40s that killed 14,000. So right. that's 20. And then between 53 and 54, another 10. So that's 30,000 Londoners uh, killed by cholera. And there are miasmists that think, yeah, it's from it's from smelling this stuff in the air. Right. So people are trying to, like, treat the air. They poured something called um, calcium of or chloride of lime, which is, amounts to basically pool chlorine today, into the Thames, like $150,000 worth of this stuff to try to cover up the stench. That didn't work and actually has made the Thames more toxic. But Jon Snow is running around. He's like, no, no, there's there's some other m- method of transmission. It has nothing to do with the smell. The smell is just a byproduct. And he actually did a an, an outbreak map of cholera and traced it back to a particular well, a public well that had been dug uh, unbeknownst to the well diggers, within about um, three or four feet of an abandoned cesspool that had been built over and forgotten. And the, the cesspool that contained cholera-laden fecal bacteria um, into the, uh, the, the, the public well was making people sick. And Jon Snow figured it out, and he's considered one of the early, uh, earliest epidemiologists as a result. All right, let's take a break. And uh, I need to go wash my hands. (laughs) And then we'll come back and talk about what happened in the summer of 1858, right after this. So the Thames is in bad shape. Uh, a few very smart people realize this. They're trying to raise a little hay about it. Nothing much is happening. Uh, people are getting cholera. Poor people are dying. Uh, but because, you know, uh, I was about to say because it's Britain, but a lot of countries back then may have handled this the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really, until it hit kind of the the politicians and the rich and the famous, is when things really are going to change. And in the summer of 1858, a, a heat wave is what really, really changed things because the heat combined with the, the, what was going on in that river really made uh, what was called the Great Stink, uh, capital G, capital S, in London. And it was happening all up and down the Thames, but it was happening very close to where, uh, what was it, Westminster, where the politicians yeah, Parliament. huddled in uh, – and made their little rules, and they couldn't. Yeah, they, they, they basically couldn't go to work. They were like, you know what? This is starting to affect our government. We're using scented handkerchiefs. Uh, <laughs> none of this is working. So 
like we finally it, it took that to be able to it'd be like in America if you know there was something going on and no one reacted until it, like poop was flowing up the steps of the White House basically. Right, basically. And the 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 irony of the whole thing is that had it not been for um the persistence of the miasma theory of disease Parliament might have not actually ended up acting um, because so you have to you have to put yourself in this. So the stink is so bad that we're talking about it uh, 150 or 60 years later. Right. That's how bad it was. It was a legendarily bad, offensive stench. And not only was it a, a terrible, retching smell, that supposedly people miles away would catch scent of it and throw up, like just throw up where they were standing. It was that bad. Because again, we're talking hundreds of years of human waste and animal waste and um, and decaying bodies and just all sorts of nastiness. Oh, intestines, is, like, you know what they did with this, you know, when they were like preparing animals for slaughter? Mm-hmm. It went to the same place. Exactly. And and again, this is hundreds of years of this stuff. And the Thames has um, slowed to a trickle because it's a dry spell. And now, because of this heat wave, it's cooking. The Thames is cooking. All this nasty stuff is cooking, and the stench is coming off. So on top of it being that bad of a smell, you also have to put yourself in the position of the people who are living at the time who believe that smells cause disease. Right. That cholera and typhus and malaria are caused, like if you smell it, you may have just caught it. So they are terrified of this. But had Jon Snow, had people listened to him and, and realized that, no, you get it from actually drinking the water. Yeah, which is what they're doing. Right. But Parliament may not have acted because Parliament and some of the wealthier people in London, they got their water from, like, north of the city, um, piped in through aqueducts. So they had clean drinking water. It was the lower classes that were drinking the water drawn straight from the Thames. So they were drinking the same water that they were throwing their waste into because they didn't realize that there was such a thing as um, the the oral fecal-oral transmission of waterborne illnesses, everybody thought it was just the stench. Yeah, so Parliament's uh, notoriously very slow to get anything done, like a lot of governments. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it took about, uh, what, 18 days, which was super fast. I think it was I a think, record. Yeah, I think so too. And they created a bill, uh, passed this bill, and signed it into law that basically said, we need to uh, basically re- redo the river here. I don't know what it's going to take. Um, I don't even think they knew how much it was going to cost at the time, but they knew that the Great Stink had to stop. Right. So, um, again, this was after it kind of, like you said, the poop just piled up at their doorstep, right? Yeah. But the, they, they had fortunately just, in like a couple of years before, I think maybe 1855, they created a new department. Um, up to this time, like uh, the water works and the... Um, I think the sewage works were privately held, but Parliament had just recently created a new department called the um, Metropolitan Board of Works, and they had um, designated a, a chief engineer by the, the name of Joseph uh, Bazalget. Isn't that how you would say it? Sure. We're going with Bazalget then, Chuck, if you're on board with that. Yes. So Joseph Basil Gett would turn out to be one of the most celebrated engineers in Western history. And he just so happened to have 
kind of gotten on the Michael Faraday trolley and been like, yes, we need to do something about the Thames. And the solution is, are, is a sewer. It's a modernized sewer. So he had spent years already drawing up plans and trying to get them implemented to no avail. And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, within 18 days of this, the great stink developing, the parliament says, hey, uh, Basil Get." Go get your plans. We're going to put them into uh, use. Go raise some money, say about $3 million, which is like, I think, uh, $430 million today, 3 million pounds, um, and get to work as fast as you can. Yeah, before this, the uh, they didn't even have, like before the Metropolitan Board of Works, they didn't even have a, a group that was even funded to tackle anything like this. Right. And then once they even had the Metropolitan Board, it wasn't really funded yet. So that's why they had to go out and raise money. So the hiring of Basil Gat was uh, Basil Gat? Basil Gette. <laughs> Is he Italian? No. I think his family originated in revolutionary France. So let's say Basil Gat. Yeah. So the hiring of him was fortuitous because he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was definitely the guy to come in and take care of this. And his plan, like, it was so revolutionary that it's still, in its simplicity, though, that it's still sort of the basis for how things work today, all these years later. Yeah, no, I mean, not only was it revolutionary, it was that well built as well. Like, it's it's the that sewer built in uh, from, like, 1858 to, I think, the 1870s is forms the backbone of London's metropolitan sewer system still to this day. It was that well made. Oh, yeah. So he's like, here's what we'll do. He says, we're going to catch this water. Uh, and the waste, like, you know, rainwater and stuff, surface water, mm-hmm. before it gets to the river. And everyone said, good start. <laughs> and he said, and then, then we're going to just reroute it, basically. We're going to run it parallel to the river and uh, combine these sewers together and divert this stuff downstream. And again, the plan, though, sadly, is still to divert it uh, out to the sea, but just not but- to the sea such that it would uh, wash right back in with the tides. Exactly. And and most importantly, where, where it dumped out into the Thames was way below the populated area. Yeah. So it was out of sight, out of mind. But it was still, I mean, is it, that, that is definitely a mark against it. But w- with considering what he had to work with, it was quite revolutionary. The idea of catching all this stuff and moving it away from the city to keep the Thames clean, right? All right, so let's take another break, and we'll come back and talk uh, more about Basil Gett's plan uh, that actually worked right after this. So, Chuck, um, you said, like, the main part of Bazalgette's plan was um, to basically build a subterranean sewer that ran parallel to the Thames that was big. 82 miles worth. I saw somewhere else 1,100 miles. I don't know where they got that. Let's go with 82 miles because it sounds (laughs) much, much more realistic. Yeah. But... um, that that in parts were big enough to build a, to to run a train through, and in fact, some of these underground sewer tunnels, they're like, well, it's also build the underground subway system at the same time. Um, so it was a massive project, and those used gravity. They had like a two foot drop per mile 
which is a pretty good drop. So they would conduct the sewage and rainwater down down uh, toward the Thames, but not at the Thames, using gravity. And then smaller ones were egg-shaped so that the, they were narrower at the bottom, so that would kind of get the flow going even faster, too. So um, that's like the, the main part that's the bulk of, of this project, but it's certainly not the whole thing by a long shot. No, not at all. So they uh, realized that there were like, you know, even if you build a house that runs on gravity, there might be low-lying areas of your mm-hmm. uh, sewage pipe that eventually cause you problems. I've been through this myself. It's no fun. No one wants to deal with poop, whether it's yeah. Victorian uh, London or modern-day Atlanta. And so, like today, you have to pump that stuff out. So they built these giant pumping stations, uh, a few different ones, um, Crossness, Abbey Mills, uh, Chelsea, and Deptford. And they made these things really nice looking, which was uh, probably a pretty good move, um, especially uh, Abbey Mills and Crossness. Really, really lovely buildings. Uh, they kind of look like cathedrals, which is ironic, uh, because they were pumping out poop the whole time. Right. Uh, and it was th- this was really key there because, like I said, this low-lying, you've got to take care of all of the problem or else it's just going to, like, magnify you know, so it wasn't good enough just to be like, let's get 80% of it out, not worry about the low levels or the low-lying areas. Right, so they sure. really had to pump it all out. Yeah. So so they built these beautiful pumping stations. One of the other things that they did was they reclaimed a tremendous amount of land from the Thames. At the time, the, the Thames just had natural banks, right? Sure. Like the, the river just kind of came up to the city, and that was where you stopped, or that's where the building started. Um, what they did was they built massive embankments that were that were that started with seawalls and then were filled in that contained the sewers, contained the subway tunnels, that was just basically extending the city out into the Thames. And it did one thing. It gave you a lot more space. It also covered up the tunnels. But it also very wisely um, brought the banks of the uh, Thames closer together in those stretches through the city. So the Thames went from wider to narrower, which had the effect of uh, increasing its flow through London. It used to flow much more slowly than it does now. But one of the ways that they kind of make sure that all that stuff washes through London and gets out to the sea is by bringing the banks closer together to narrow it, to um, push uh, the same amount of volume of water through a narrower spot, which speeds the whole thing up. Yeah, so if you go to the Victoria Embankment today, um, Bazalgette actually was knighted in 1875 because of these achievements that he made as an engineer. And mm-hmm. that's where you're going to find the monument to him. Um, and he he was very funny. Like, if you ever read any interviews with him, he just kind of talks about what what a drag it was to do that job and how hard it was. Right. Um, just sort of in a very understated English way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where the monument is. And by 1866, it was evident that this plan was working because there was another cholera outbreak. Um, and the only part of London that was really hit hard was the East End, which was the only section of London that wasn't connected to the sewer system. So they realized this this is obviously working. It's going to mm-hmm. stop this disease um, it's clearly not just airborne, so that that proved that correct too. Yeah, it definitely supported. I think 
uh, Louis Pasteur by that time had formed his germ theory, and then Joseph Lister was really starting to demonstrate it in the 1870s. So yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty, pretty evident that that you know that, and I think the microscope really kind of showed like yeah, this, there are such a thing as germs. That whole miasma theory is out the window. Yeah, but uh, Bazalgette was really smart because he was like. He had foresight. He wasn't like, let me just solve this problem. Like London has this many people, and so just let me let me build this thing to handle this many people. Right. He, he built it with that eye on, on the future, and said, uh, you know, let's build it to accommodate a population growth of of fifty percent, and um, that happened within thirty years. Uh, London's population doubled again, uh, yep. but because of the foresight of Bazalgette, um, that thing still remained pretty strong at the time. It did. I mean, think about that, right? So he was like, okay, we'll make it so that four and a half million people can use this thing and it'll do just fine. He must have thought it would take forever to get to that number. And they reached six million in 30 years. That's crazy. That's a crazy amount of population growth. And yet still, Basil gets design worked. And one of the reasons it worked was because he had a fail-safe. And I guess it was a... I guess you would call it a fail-safe, but... So... If there were a lot of water that suddenly hit in the form of like rain or something like that, like a flash flood, remember the sewers connected sewage and rainwater. So you didn't want the sewers overflowing into the streets because that would mean sewage was overflowing in the streets, right? What he designed were um, basically outfalls or overflows so that if there were a sudden large amount of rainwater entered the sewers, it would be directed to spew into the Thames, which is not not the greatest thing you wanted to happen, but it it would happen infrequently enough because the sewers were so big that um, it was an acceptable fail-safe, right? And it worked. And that's why we added more and more and more Londoners using the same sewer system because it had those outflows. Well, unfortunately, now we've reached the point, thanks to things like climate change and the fact that it's creeping up on 10 million Londoners, that the sewer system is now fairly routinely discharging raw sewage and stormwater anytime a heavy rain comes along. And don't get anybody started on the fatbergs either, because those are just making the problems even worse. So now w- there there has to be another update, and they're working on that right now too. Yeah, but London still, uh, I mean, the Thames is known as the cleanest river that runs through a major city despite this. Really? Um, yeah, much because of the work of uh, Bazalgette. Um But this is a problem, this, these 50 overflows uh, happening every year. No one's happy about. So they've, uh, they're underway, I think, started a couple of years ago in 2016. The, the Tideway Tunnel Scheme, mm-hmm. um, also known as the Super Sewer, should be completed in 2023. And what their goal basically is are, are these overflows – that are, like I said, around 50 times a year to get those down to no more than four every year. Oh, gotcha. Which is good. Quarterly dump, <clears throat> quarterly overflow. Right. Not bad. That beats almost once a week. Yeah, you could just make it like a national holiday and everybody can leave town if you could schedule it. Yeah, so they've been working on this for a while. And it's, um, I mean, it's one of the biggest civil engineering projects in the world, probably. Yeah. Or in which- world history, maybe. It um, I'm, what's funny about it is that like so Basilgate created the sewer to catch the sewage before it reached the Thames. They're creating this super sewer, the Tideway Tunnel, to catch the overflow from Basilgate's sewers before it reaches the Thames. 
Yeah, so his system is still the the foundation. Yeah, I mean, they've definitely added to it and improved on it. They, uh, I guess sometime in the 20th century, stopped just pumping raw sewage into the Thames and started treating it instead. And then they still discharged the treated water into the Thames, but it's now going through a treatment process that wasn't there before. But yeah, but that, that thing designed by Basil, get this, made of bricks, like 300-something million bricks, um, is still the, the foundation of this, the, the sewer system in, in London. Pretty amazing. I think so too, man. All because of the great stink of 1858, because of a heat wave that came through and cooked several hundred years of poop and pee and vomit and dead bodies. This makes me want to do uh, maybe a short stuff on the uh, when the <clears throat> Cuyahoga River in Akron or in uh, Ohio burned. Mm-hmm. Rivers on fire. That's not a good sign. No, it's not. Poor Cleveland. <laughs> Everybody just kind of hung their head and like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that, okay, that'd well, be a good short stuff, I think. I agree, Chuck. Uh, in the meantime, while we're whipping up that short stuff for you, if you want to know more about the Great Stink, head on over to um, the internet and read up on it because there's plenty of great articles, including some of the ones we use today. And since I said that, everybody, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, hey, guys. Started listening to Stuff You Should Know sometime last summer. I've been hooked ever since. Uh, I've been working my way back through the catalog and probably listened to a couple of hundred. Uh, Listen to some of the other shows you guys talk about, but they feel too scripted. Your show is really well done, educational, and entertaining. Thank you. Love, Andrew. No, kidding. There's more. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In a few different episodes, you guys use the word Yankee a lot. Uh, New England vampires, for one. Monument removal come to mind. Um, And by the way, if we use Yankee, we're either quoting or like... Our tongue is in our cheek. We're not, like, really saying Yankee. No, it's lo- like loving, if anything. Yeah, no one really says that. I mean, there are people that still not say that. anger. But, yeah, but they're rednecks. Um, <laughs> I'm from New England and have lived all over New England, and I'm still in New England. I wanted to share with you all my favorite definition of Yankee. If you're from the South, and by the way, I should preface this by saying I don't get it. If you're from the South, a Yankee is someone from the North. If you're from the North, a Yankee is someone from New England. If you're from New England, a Yankee is someone from Vermont who eats pie for breakfast with a knife. Mm-hmm. Do you get that? Right. No, I think um, what Andrew doesn't realize is that the person who told him that is insane. <laughs> <laughs> and that the only person who gets it is the person who told him that. Well, he said this comes from an old-timey farmer in Vermont that I used to work for. So. Yep. Uh, who ate pie with a knife and laughed to himself a lot. <laughs> Glad you got out of there alive, Andrew. Yep. That's all I'll Thanks. say. Thanks, Andrew. If anyone out there can uh, shed some light on Andrew's farmer's friend's joke, we'd love to know. Uh, you can get in touch with us. Go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links there. Uh, and you can also just send us a good old-fashioned email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 